would you rather like you know just go off quit see if you could do it full-time or maybe just go back to working just like everyone else and then do it in your free time again so like which one to just for your own like psychology right and i guess for me i ended up thinking like okay i want to just give it a shot like just see what happens if i just quit Remember, the full episode is only available to our Patreon members. Hello, welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew, and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey, everyone. Uh, our guest today is Henry Zhu. Uh, you might know Henry as a longtime maintainer and steward of the Babel project. Uh, Henry, welcome. It's so great to have you on the show. Uh, before we start, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Um. Yeah, I don't know what else to add. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I maintained Babel uh, for a long time now. I, I used to work at Adobe. I quit in like 2018, and I also started a podcast myself. Um, then it's called Hope In Source. Yeah. What's the podcast about? Yeah, <laughs> good question. Um, it's a little bit different. Uh, you know, like I guess this podcast is about developer tools and people. This is about, I guess, people and community and like maybe how it relates to faith in a way. Um, it doesn't have to be about faith or anything. I think it's just maybe emphasizing the people side of communities. So, or maintainers actually, that too. So, yeah. That's awesome. I, I was actually browsing through and, and looking at some of the episode descriptions. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast when we were starting it off is like, make sure that we emphasize the the personal connection, mm. the people behind the tools, you know? Uh, and, and I like, you know, just going through and reading some of the descriptions and how sort of even more human that, that your, your podcast is approaching some, you know, deeply personal stuff that and I think is, it's kind of cool. Yeah. I got into, um, philosophy again i guess so i've been talking to like professors or people in seminary and, um yeah so that's been fun or just like different like i i always think of the example of like um steve klabnik had like that post about open source as a gardener and i was like oh i should interview a gardener at some point like they're maintainers they're actually maintainers too and like we can learn a lot so if you're not already a gardener so yeah it's a fun idea you said you started, you were working at Adobe a few years ago, but in that time, I think you've been super heavily involved with open source. Like I've seen you everywhere on Babel, saw you in the learner repo a bit. I may have even seen you in the yarn repo. I, I don't know. Um, but how did you get involved with open source and all these different projects? Yeah. Um, I think I've said this before, but, um, the summary is like, I, um, I'm sorry, I'm from Georgia. Uh, after I graduated, I was trying to get a job in California at the time because that's where I ever wanted to go. Didn't get into any of the tech companies. So I just found like a random job out of the nowhere um, in Georgia. And then um, I met a coworker there that was sitting next to me and they were working on open source. Uh, his name is Jonathan Neal. He worked on some stuff like normalized CSS, uh, a bunch of CSS still active now. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'd never heard of open source before um, or at least thought that I could contribute to it, right? I think at the time I was using like Bootstrap for like random side projects. And then I was like, wow, I could actually, you know, participate in that. And I thought that was cool. 
So he was like, yeah, I just picked some random projects. So I was like, oh, at the time I was using Angular 1. And so I was like, oh, I should try to contribute to that. But I ended up, that was really hard to contribute to because it's a whole framework. It's like, and we all know it's really complicated, uh, especially the first one, right? Um, and so one of the issues on there just happened to be an issue about linting. And, you know, if you look at all the issues in a repo, especially something like a framework, they're probably really hard to understand because it's all about the intricacies of it. And this one was straight up just like somebody needs to, something like someone needs to like fix our formatting so that, um, you know, the spaces and, you know, names, stuff like that can be changed. And this is before Prettier, before like, um, I think even ESLint. Um, and so I started working on it, um, just fixing AngularJS code. And I ended up getting like top 50 contributors, something like that, something high, just by changing these like <laughs> random things. Because they told me you have to make every change on a separate commit. So I ended up with like 30 commits or something. And I thought that was so cool at the time. Now I'm like, whatever. But um, it, it made me feel like good. Um, but the problem is uh, after I finished that, I didn't know what to work on anymore because I don't get the framework. So I ended up working on the linter itself, like the JSCS, which is the thing I worked on. And then long story short, that led to ESLint and then Babel, ESLint, and then Babel. So like somehow that that one thing led me to somehow work on Babel, even though I didn't know anything about linting. So it's a big transition to go from, you know, trying to find contribution moments inside of a pre-existing project to being a core maintainer on a project. The pressure is different your relationship with the code is different, your relationship with the community. Um, can you talk a little bit about that transition for you? It's like, uh, you know, how hard did you find it to go from just like contributing sometimes to like being a core maintainer? And was there anything like surprising that you learned along the way? Yeah. Um, that's the thing. Like when I come up here, it'll make it sound like it just happened overnight. You know, it, there's a long time period for a lot of these things. Like say when I started working um, at that company and then starting JSCS, I think it was like 2015, 16. And I think it was only until like, or it might've been before that actually, or I, I don't even know the timeline anymore, but you know, it, it was a long time from like making a pull request. Like even the first pull request I made to the linter, was a table of contents, um, literally just changing it, the readme. And I think that's automatic now. So like, that's funny. All these changes are things that GitHub does for you now. <laughs> and then Prettier does all the formatting for you. Um, but, but I guess I was a part of that movement of helping that exist in the future because I worked on a linter and the thing I cared about was auto fixing because I was like, I don't want to, I just manually fix like hundreds of things, right? Um, so I want to figure out how do we automate that? And I think some of, maybe some of those ideas led to what we have now, but, I think that it took a really long time to build confidence on, you know, whether you think something's a good idea. You're when you're beginning, you're kind of I mean, it depends on the person. You know, some people are kind of like they almost demand to like get their contribution in. But I feel like if you're the kind of person that is kind of maybe a little bit scared or fearful, I don't think that's bad in the sense of like people will respect you for like being courteous to the maintainer and then the way the repo works or the org, like every, um, you know, repo or open source project has a different way of working, different culture, different ethos, whatever you want to call it, different code of conduct, different 
um, guides on how to do things, different code review style, all that stuff. It's like a company, right, basically. And the only difference is that at a company, in order to contribute, you have to apply, get the job, and then there's an onboarding process. And they're supposed to, they're paid to help you do that. In open source, anyone can show up all around the world at any point in time, and you just have to, like, the maintainer is like, how, how much responsibility do you have to, like, help these people? Um, do you feel like you want to do that? And some people don't even have open contribution. Um, yeah, I, I, oh, there's so much there. <laughs> yeah, there's, like, varying degrees of getting into, you know, going from, like, I'm just opening up pull requests and it's getting merged to, like, now I have commit access. Yes, yes. Or now I have, like, admin access or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just going off of that, I think... It's funny, the the way I actually got my job at Adobe, and this is kind of mind-blowing, just thinking about, like, I was working, and then they sent me an email, um, like, hey, do you want to work at Adobe at, in New York? And I kind of didn't want to, but I was like, oh, they're, they're, they found me through open source, they hopefully care about open source, so that's why I took the job. But two of the people that were the maintainers of that linter I worked on, JSCS, they worked at Adobe, so I got my job basically by working on that project. And they only gave me commit rights when basically the, my first day of joining the company, um, even though I was obviously working on it for a long time. So I think that from the, from the maintainer perspective, like how much trust do you want to put in someone before you give someone commit rights? And this is a huge problem in terms of like, especially now, you know, everyone's been talking about security, uh, uh, what's called supply chain attacks, stuff like that. I think giving someone commit right is not as bad anymore because you know usually you publish separately you know like npm and that has different permissions so if they merge something that you didn't like you can always revert it before the publish happens i don't think you probably want to give someone npm access the first you know moment they give you a pull request because that's where that stuff happens where they like you know they like they don't even publish to github they just auto publish to npm and then it has some like bad code or malicious code in there and that has happened like many times um and so there's a huge problem. And this is actually something that happened in Lerna. I think you already talked to Daniel a few episodes ago. Um, you know, I actually kind of, quote unquote, took over the Lerna project. It's basically the same thing because the same person, Sebastian, made both. And I had to figure out how to transition that because, like, I was working on Babel and Lerna. And we were using Lerna in Babel, you know, like all that stuff. And I was like, I don't want to maintain two things. I just, you know, we all have limits. And finally, I felt like I needed to step away from that. Um, which is good because when you um, start off on this stuff, someone gives you like commit rights, you're going to feel this like obligation to help. You start spending so much time and then you like lose all your free time. So it's almost like that you work yourself to the point where you realize you can actually physically can't do it anymore. So I was like, I need to find someone, right? And I think with that one, um, you know, people showed up and they were like contributing a lot. And I was like, oh, I might as well just give it to them. People do it all the time. We just give people access. And eventually you're just like, okay, I just hope that they're good people and they're not going to screw everything over. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes, you know, people put like, you know, bad stuff in their code. Um, it's really hard. And, and that's why with Lerna, um, I didn't feel comfortable and I, uh, at, uh, to just give random people the commit. Because a lot of, there's this huge issue with hundreds of comments in it. Like, hey, why aren't we updating this? Um, well, first, I haven't looked at it in a long time. I don't want to just give someone access they didn't show that they did any work like there's all these people demanding like hey i said i'm gonna work on i'm committing to this project you just say i don't care if you work at amazon or whatever like whatever like or google that doesn't mean anything right if you have shown us like what i would do is like you fork it 
get people to use it and you've been contributing that at least shows that you care enough to like work on this if you just said i'm gonna work on it what does that mean how do i know you're not just doing this to like get cloud or or whatever i, I don't know so so it, it, i guess it's like it's really hard and i guess for daniel he ended up going with a company and that makes sense that they're like okay they're committed they're probably i mean they could totally do something bad too but at least there's like a almost like um skin in the game like if they do something bad it looks bad for the company so yeah yeah it's, it's a hard problem because i remember one one package where a guy literally did that he forked it he became an active maintainer was like part of the team and then the guy was like, okay, you can have it. And then after that, he's like started spreading malware. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's so hard to, to trust these random people. Like I, uh, I took over responsibility for a package called Jimp. And then mm-hmm. like, I was, I worked on it. I refactored the whole thing. I was like intensely focused on it for months. And then I just stopped using it because I didn't need to use it anymore. And now I'm the sole maintainer that will respond to issues and now i have people that are like hey can you get these things merged for me and i'm like i haven't looked at this code in years like the anxiety of me releasing a thing for a thing i don't use and then potentially breaking everybody is is weighs heavily on me so like this passing of stewardship of a project it's a very hard problem yeah, um, and and I'll I'll just say that like I am a random person, you know. Yeah. When I started, right? So like, why would they trust me either? So it's like, um, at some point, you kind of have to take that leap. You know, I, I was gonna say I don't know if people talk about this, but like, you know, various malicious companies or even countries, they could easily just like train some people up to go to a project, work there, even maybe for a whole year, you know, and then mm-hmm. then that once that happens, they could do whatever they want. And we can't stop that. And no one's going to reasonably like say, I trusted this person for a whole year. And then suddenly they did that. It's not going to be your fault because like, you know, you vetted them, right? You tried. Um, so that's really hard. And it doesn't even have to be a big package. Like your username left pad, someone could have came in and become a left pad contributor. And then the second someone steps away, that's where they start inserting their bad code. And like, it's not even a hard problem to like become a contributor too. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's a easy way to deal with it, like a hundred percent. Like I think there are different companies that do security. They can analyze code and oh, they used eval or they added these random things. That's fine. But like in the end, you still need to trust people. Um, and that gets into like a lot of issues around like funding and who you should trust. Whether they should you should have this many dependencies to begin with. You know, like all these things. Yeah, when I was a junior developer, and I've heard for the first time that you should be auditing all your dependencies and like reading their code, I was like, how how is that possible? You look at your node modules, and there's thousands of packages in there. How are you possibly supposed to be able to go through those and be like, yeah, those are good? Yeah. Yeah, it's not super, it's not really possible. And and then the thing is, it's like, um, just going further than that, it's it's a trust issue. It's a key trust issue. Uh, and, you know, as we've said, there's only so much you can do to mitigate. I actually saw a package this week that was interesting that was, like, it hooks into, like, Node's actual, like, I.O. Uh, native functions and will, like, let you know if certain packages are using that mm. or whatever. You can, like, restrict sort of runtime things. And it's, like a way to slightly mitigate but you know not completely but you know just thinking about this a lot 
So I've been using Dino a lot mm-hmm. more recently. Right, I was going to say and that. The, yeah, the thing is, it's like having a good security model built into your platform is an important part of this overall story. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, remove like supply chain attacks, right? Because it's like, you know, you could have somebody contributing for a year and they're like, great. And then you, they join the team and then they, maybe they contribute for a while longer. And then suddenly they go off, off the rails and like, shit malware and and like you can't it's it's hard to completely stop that right but uh i do think as like platform creators you have a a responsibility to think about security a little bit a little bit more uh top of mind yeah this reminds me of like back in 2015 i was writing a github notifications app for adam the text editor and i realized it's like wait, how do I secure my token? Like, you know, is there a secure storage somewhere that I can just like dump it in and like it not get leaked out to other plugins and stuff? And they're like, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> it's like, there's no isolation between plugins. And I, as like, that was the first time that it like really hit me. It's like, oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of terrifying. Yeah. No, I think even, Dono, one of the problems is that I think it's like a like a lot of these are like CLI type things like allow net or allow whatever IO. I think the problem is that it's like kind of really black and white. And it's like, okay, either this whole process can't use IO or the internet. And it's like, well, what if one package needs it? And then now you have to turn it off. And it's like, I feel like it's not even a benefit anymore. So I did see that um I think it was I don't know if it was MetaMask or some people, they worked on this thing called Lava Moat. Uh, because you know they're an extension, a Chrome extension, and then they have they obviously need a secure crypto or whatever. Um, what they do is they like they actually look through every dependency and find out where those things are being used. So I think you need almost like a runtime thing where it'll tell you every place that uses IO. I feel like you almost need to check every place and like oh I allow I allow this I allow this like oh everything that Babel has it's it's okay, but not like this random package that I don't know about. Um, that would actually be like more 100% rather than just like on or off. It's it's interesting that a crypto project made this because like it, that makes sense. Like in a crypto project, yeah. you'd want like like iron tight security that there's <laughs> no way that my key could get out possibly. I know that's like the only good thing. I was like, wow, the good thing about crypto is at least they care about security <laughs> and we can use that benefit for us. It, it, assuming we can even use it, but yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so I mean, Going back to the thing about Dino is like, I think you're right. Is like uh, the flags at the CLI level can be, can be a little uh, blunt at times, but you can like narrow things down. So it's like, I want FS access to like this one module. And then they also have workers where inside the worker, you can give it explicit permissions that are narrowed down from the, the, the top level thing. So you can run something in a different process that has like even more limited permissions. But I mean, you know, I think overall as an industry, it's like something that we have to start taking more seriously. Uh, you know, heartened to see, see things like Tari, the mm-hmm. Rust-based electron alternative, if you will. Um, you know, it's 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 obviously not feature complete with electron by any stretch of the imagination, but they do think about security in a bit of a different way, and I think that's a, I don't know, just something we we yeah. should definitely, <laughs> as hard as it is, just keep going. So. You'd mentioned that you'd worked at uh, Adobe in 2018, or left Adobe around 2018, and then and then started uh, essentially working on open source full time. That's a really fascinating transition. We've talked a lot about 
uh, open source sustainability and, you know, funding for open source. Uh, how has your experience been of transitioning to essentially subsist off of yeah. sponsorships? Yeah. Uh, I feel like that could be a whole book. Um, <laughs> and I also, I don't know if it's like, I'm like, I can only, yeah, I obviously I'm talking about my own experience and everyone, every project is different. Everyone's lifestyle is different. Everyone's background is different. Um, I think that, I don't know. I got to the point in, I guess, working at Adobe that I felt like I really wanted to work on open source as my full-time thing. Um, I was lucky that my my coworkers and my boss, um, they were very encouraging and they gave me 50% time to work on Babel at some point during my time there. And I was telling them, I was like, okay, I want to do full-time. And they, they gave, gave me half-time. And at some point, I felt like I was doing a lot of work, not with, obviously not with the rest of my team. And I just kind of felt like lonely in a way. I don't know how to describe it. You know, like no one was like being mean or anything. It was just kind of like, you know, everyone's doing their own thing and I'm doing my own thing sometimes. And I wanted to feel like I was on a team again. Um, there's, I don't know, you can't really solve that, right? And so... The, the suggestion that my boss told me was just straight up like, you just need to decide for yourself, would you rather like, you know, just go off, quit, see if you could do it full time, or maybe just go back to working just like everyone else and then do it in your free time again. So like, which one to just for your own like psychology, right? And, and I guess for me, I ended up thinking like, okay, I want to just give it a shot, like just see what happens if I just quit. Um, and they were really supportive of that too. They're like, you know, you know how like when you, tell them you're going to leave a company and they're trying to get you to stay and all that stuff. They, they, they know, like, I'm not trying to do this for any other reason just because I want to do this. Um, and so they're very supportive. They even let me stay at their office, just like work there, you know, co-work, stuff like that, stuff like that. Um, and I think, I don't know. I, I think the parts of open source that I liked the most were these, like we were saying about the people side, all that stuff again. Um, the non-technical parts of open source are just as important or maybe more important because no one's focusing on them. And I wanted to kind of explore that or at least be willing to put my time into that, if that makes sense. Um, and so when I quit, I um, we didn't really have a lot of money. I think we had like 10000 per year in Babel, which is basically like nothing. Um, and I only started that because... Our previous battle maintainer, one of our teammates, uh, named Logan, um, he quit his job just because he quit his job. And then I was like, oh, we should figure out if he can fund you because he was just working on battle for fun. And by the time I we had enough money, he already was like, I, I kind of just want to get a job again. You know, I don't want to deal with all this, you know, like just like not knowing if money's going to even come through. But then at that point, I was like, I'm just going to do it. Um, and I set up like a Patreon. Um, which I guess got a lot of traction in the beginning. Uh, I got like a lot of people like supporting me, which is great. I got like two, three thousand a month the first month, just because like a few people were like really nice. Because the next month it was already like a <laughs> thousand. Um, and then and then this other open collective stuff, which is uh, basically Patreon for groups. It's an open source platform where um companies can donate to a project and it's like transparent all that. That took a really long time to ramp up. Um, and I think most of it is just because I put myself out there. I went to all these conferences and talks to tell people about open source, about Babel, and then, you know, getting people 
I didn't even necessarily say donate, but like, you know, I'm there and I told them I quit my job and stuff. Uh, and that company should support open source. Um, like we're talking about the security stuff. I feel like they should be paying open source people just for that, just to make sure they don't like, like it's sort of like you have all this responsibility and like power, quote unquote, to do bad and you don't get anything out of it. Like you don't make more money by doing open source necessarily. Um, and if you could work at a Google, well, you don't want to because you want to work on your open source project. So it's like you, you put yourself in this position where you're kind of like, I kind of want to, you know, you have to make a choice. Like, do you want to work at this big tech company or do you want to just like do this other thing? And I think at, at the end, I decided I'd rather just see if that makes more sense. Um, even just mentally, I, I just felt like I would rather, um, I, I or like I am at the time or at the moment willing to make less money just because I want to do something that I enjoy. Um, and everyone's different situation. Um, so. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's an incredibly hard thing to do just to get, you know, grassroots support for a project. So, you know, props, definitely props to you for, uh, putting, pulling a lot of that together and, you know, as, as we've tried to go through our own, like sort of like sustainability thing. And it's, this is not even about like making a living. It's mm -hmm. just like, how do we have this thing net zero where it doesn't actually cost us, you know, a bunch of time and, you know, money and just like random services that we had to pay for to get it to work. Uh, you know, even that it's, it's non-trivial. Yeah. Know? It takes a lot of work. Right. Um, and there's so many people so, wanting to be creators now, like whether it's YouTube, this podcast, like I have a podcast. Yeah. I'm spending a lot of money on this podcast. I'm not, I don't even want to, it to be like a full-time thing for me. It's just like, like you said, you know, you have to pay for hosting and editing all these, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think that's, this is like silent part of open source maintainers who are doing it full time, or maybe even to like broaden it out, just content creators, you know, uh, who have to live this like double life where you're like, you're putting out your content or whatever you want to focus on that. You want to make it great, but like to make it sustainable, you have to do all this extra work uh, just to be able to ensure that you can continue it or you take a personal sacrifice and you pay for it out of your pocket. You know, you eat up a bunch of your extra time on nights and weekends and you know, that makes it a lot harder and a lot less sustainable. So it's just, you know, one of those things that comes along with like, you know, all these great libraries and all these great YouTube videos and podcasts and all this stuff. It's like, you know, for the ones that are getting monetization, that's great. Uh, and for the rest of them, it's just like a, a lot of sac sacrifice that you might not see. So uh, you do quite, quite a bit of work and a lot of it is people work and it's probably people that aren't the most grateful most of the time. So I can imagine that this has led to, to burnout uh, quite, quite a bit. So how, how have you personally dealt with burnout or have you even dealt with it at all? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm definitely. I mean, you could say in some sense I'm dealing with it now. Um, I think that there maybe there's like I don't even know. Maybe there's levels of burnout, <laughs> and there's like progressions of burnout depending on what you're doing as a maintainer. You know, like maybe every project I had some form of burnout. Like, um, where do I start? Like, okay, so like JSCS, the first linter I worked on, there was a form of burnout there because. Um, 
it's almost like JSDS and ESLint were like competing against each other. And there's a form of burnout in the sense of like, you feel like, is it even worth working on this thing when we could just combine forces, you know? And our solution with that was, was to do that. We just merged the projects together, but not everyone's willing to do that. And there was some, like some people might be more willing to do it and other people don't want to. And then you have to convince them that it's worth it. Um, stuff like that. And I think that is a form that maybe is a stress. And then other burnout, I think, um, Many people have said, like, you know, there's, like, the burnout of, like you said, it just costs money and time. Then there's the burnout of, like, dealing with people. Uh, that's a separate kind of burnout. And then there's just straight up just being in a project for a long time, regardless, right? Like, it's not fun anymore. And, and like you said, like, uh, you know, you worked on this thing 10 years ago, but some people are still giving you issues. Why do you feel like it's still your obligation to, like, work on it? And I think they're... I felt all of those before. I think everyone will. If you put something on GitHub, um, for some reason, it like creates this expectation that you're going to maintain this thing for for life. Uh, we like to joke about the whole benevolent dictator for life thing, um, but it's like we're not really addressing it in the the negative sense of like, you know, I've I've made these like very small things. Like I made this um, Twitch plays Pokemon type app thing it just helps you create a twitch plays pokemon and i think i wrote it in like some javascript and this even has some python in it or something i was like i don't look at that anymore but people are still like making issues and i was like i don't know what to do so i i think i unwatched the repo or something um just because i can't be bothered um like it, there's already all these other things it's like how many little things unless you still like it you know i, I think that's ultimately the thing it's like if you enjoy doing it great but there's probably a point where you you're not really enjoying it or, or maybe you enjoy certain parts of it and then you have to figure out what's the best thing for it. Like, do you want to delegate? Should you do the archive thing? People love doing that, right? <laughs> Just make it read only, you know? Um, so GitHub notification anxiety is, is a real thing. Like when I started mm -hmm. out in my open source journey, like I would be very on top of my notifications and then I'd read about people being like having that anxiety. And I was like, I don't know what, what that means. And then like a few months go by, I put a bunch more projects under my belt and then it's like, Oh wow, this is like that little blue dot up there sometimes scares me. It's like, if, if I click on that dot, how much, how much of my life am I, <laughs> am I going to lose to that little blue dot today? Yeah. That's the thing. Like, the notifications won't ever decrease if you think about it. Like, unless you decide to unwatch things, every project will get used more. Just, I think everyone has to think about that inherently. Like, even if you don't update it, right, the users over time will just increase. They can't decrease, really. Um, and so, like, the amount of issues you get is going to increase. So, and you have limited time and limited energy, limited effort. So, um, you're going to get to a point where you can't handle it anymore. But, you know, we don't really know how to deal with that. There's no, I don't, like I was going to say, there's no course on how to do GitHub or be a maintainer, but I don't think that there needs to be either because I don't think you could teach it in meaning like in a standardized way where like everyone should follow this thing. I just don't think that makes sense. But everyone has to almost learn for themselves, maybe, and unfortunately, maybe the painful way uh, of like putting boundaries and setting limits. Um, I talk about this a lot. I, I unfortunately do not necessarily know how to do that better than anyone else obviously because you know we all deal with notifications on every other platform right social media all that um it's the same problem except i guess this is a, like it feels worse in a way which is like 
yeah, with with Twitter or whatever, it's like, oh, I'm not keeping up with like what's going on. But this is like you made this, or you're the maintainer, so you feel you feel like a more of an obligation to like look at it. Um, maybe even on the weekend. So I, I would like you know like a very simple practical things. You know, like turn notifications off on the weekend at least, or when you're not working. You know, or, or just choose to. You can even and now we have the away message. You can have status things like say you could tell people on the readme itself like, hey, I'm not going to look at this. You know, um, during these hours, or make a pinned issue that says. We're not doing this just to like. I think a lot of it's just setting expectations because you're you're trying to like appease the random person, and if they knew upfront, that would be a lot better. So, yeah, you have to be a lot more conscious with what you put out and then how you put it out, and being like very upfront about like I'm just messing around with something here. Please don't depend on me for production. This is this is a hobby project. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to communicate that because, you know, maybe you don't know, like, and you, you feel like you're bothering people. You have to keep changing it. Like, you know, the today I was like, oh, I do feel like changing it or I feel like working on it a lot, you know? And I think that's the problem is like people are kind of stuck with a certain way of the project working or you working and you're, you're kind of just like kind of loose. You're just kind of doing whatever you want. And that that's supposed to be the freedom <laughs> of doing open source. And it's sad that like open source actually makes you feel like you're in jail. And then, but you put yourself in that jail. I was like, oh, <laughs> pretty nefarious because I think at the beginning, at least in my personal experience, there's a lot of excitement and you get all this like momentum going and you write all this code and you accept all these pull requests and start collaborating with these people and you just feel good. But you're like, a lot of times you're digging yourself in a hole and you just don't realize it yet. Right. So you're merging features that like, mm are kind of out of scope for the project, but like, you know, you're so excited to collaborate with people. You're like, yeah, yeah, this is great. And we'll do this and we'll do this. And then you like refactor the whole project. You do all these things. And, you know, before you realize it, you're like neck deep in a lot more work than you anticipated. And that initial motivation and momentum starts wearing off. And, you know, people have seen the activity and they're excited by it and they're wanting to get more engaged and, and you're slowly like you get less and less excited. And yeah, that's that anxiety starts to build up of like, oh, no, I've got like 15 pull requests, but I don't feel like looking at this project at all. <laughs> and then you get that ping uh, update question mark or like, you know, whatever. And you're just yeah, yeah, that's a it's real. <laughs> Yeah, and it's hard because um, I don't know. It, it like every interaction will change you in some way. You know, you build these kind of habits over time, and it's really hard to be self conscious of these things. Like, how are you changing by being in this community or people talking to you? And then I I always use this like Dark Knight quote about like becoming the villain eventually. You know, like you die a, a hero or you live your live long enough to become the person you didn't want to be and i think the problem there is like you know if you keep interacting with people that are negative um because they're i mean it's called issues right it's like you know they keep reporting issues and it's always negative then you might start feeling like oh i feel like i need to be negative because you just not like you want to you just you just are um and it's really hard to kind of stay so positive and like unless you like do you make yourself numb to it or you just ignore that and you try to be positive about it it's hard like it's really hard to do that. And I think most people just like quit. I mean, it, it is like really hard. <laughs> um, and I've wanted to do that many times too. Um, but honestly, I think like, 
you have to do that at work. You have to do that in life in general. It's just another area where that happens, but you know, another place that this kind of happens like where people are people. You have to learn to, yeah, deal with people. So, yeah. So let's move on to a little lighter pastures now. Um, <laughs> so what have you been up to lately in open source? Yeah. Um, well, I'm taking a break from Babel. Um, I, that's maybe that's obvious for people, but I, and that maybe that's not the light topic, but I, I might have to write about this. Um, some stuff happened last year where that made me feel like I didn't know if I want to do this anymore. So that was like the burnout I'm referring to is like, kind of, like, I don't know if, if some people make you feel like you're not respected or, or not don't deserve to be in this space, then I don't know if I would want to do it anymore. So I'm taking a break. So I'm kind of like, I don't think I have to, um, I could just go back to doing it. I just don't, that whole experience didn't make me want to be in it at all anymore. So I'm just choosing not to take money anymore. Um, so that that's just a decision I'm making by myself and I'm just kind of just doing whatever, trying to <laughs> work on like random, um, experience experiments and stuff. I think a lot of them, I didn't open source yet. Um, but I just like playing around with stuff. Um, there was like a long time ago, I made this thing that's related to Babel called, I don't have a name for it, like Babel map or whatever. And it basically, it doesn't use source map, but it basically, um, you know, Babel will convert, you know, input to output. And I thought it would be cool to have an educational tool that would like help you understand what the output of Babel or any compiler is, like whether it's TypeScript or whatever it is. And it basically just transitions the code from input to output. It literally just like animates, uh, kind of like the prettier version, except it's the input of, you know, your ES whatever to the ES5 version. And then every character will move to where it will be in the output. And it kind of smoothly animates. So you could just have a better sense of what's going on, especially for something like JSX. People don't even know what JSX is. Like, what does it turn into? It's cool. Like, oh, this, you know, less than sign turns into like whatever. It's a function call. And it has like three parameters, like stuff like that class turns into function, you know, like all that. So I worked on that for a while. Um, haven't updated it, but that was just, like, I think there's a lot of educational work that we could do in compiler land to help people. Um, and some other, recently I've been doing a lot of stuff in audio actually, for some reason. Um, I, I don't know if it's because of the podcast. Uh, like one idea I had, I'm still thinking it through, so maybe you could, <laughs> maybe people can help me. Okay, we have like syntax highlighting, right? With the, uh, you know, different colors. And I was like, why, why isn't there like an audio form? I don't even know what that would look like, but it sounds interesting, you know? Like when I'm typing, what if it could play sounds based on keywords or like whatever? Um, so I actually had like a very simple demo where like, you know, if you type in like null, like N U L L, it'll play like four different notes. Or you, pre you play like return, it'll do like the Zelda like open chest sound, you know, like stuff like that. Um, I think it would be fun. It would make coding a little bit more um, uh, more fun, especially video game sounds. It's like very positive. So, yeah, that's like a, one example. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fun. Uh, I I, lo I love the emphasis on learning tools. Like as you said, like knowing what JSX actually transforms into. Mm -hmm. You kind like without that, you're like, oh, magic is happening. But then yeah. you see, oh, it's just a create element. Then you go, oh, mm -hmm. so the function's not actually called when I'm doing mm -hmm. that type of syntax. Uh, another tool that you've had involvement in uh, what actually started 
you getting onto this podcast was AST Explorer. Uh, AST Explorer is a, like a shining example of one of those tools where it's like pull back the compiler covers and you get to see what's actually happening. And just being able to see that opens up like worlds of possibility. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I um, I know Felix, uh, who he used to work at Facebook. He started it. Um, I just helped various places uh, and then even the thing i worked on is basically just taking the same format and doing it again i think it's a really good idea um because one of the coolest features is like when you highlight uh so basically like the left side is like your code input and the right side is like the ast which is just basically just fancy json right with like different um expanders and whatever and so when you highlight the code it'll actually focus in on like what node it is so the idea is like I think it's just giving you vocabulary. Um, you know, if I don't know what the name of some syntax is, then I could type it in AC Explorer and it'll tell me, oh, the name of this is this. So like, oh, a template literal. Like I didn't, who, who knew that that was like a thing? Yeah. You know, like, or, or like uh, for the other things like async function, that's kind of obvious, but like other ones, it's like I, I, there's a name for that and it's cool that we can use that. And then eventually you could write a Babel plugin or you can write an ESLint rule or whatever. Okay, uh, let's move on to the, our last question before we move on to tooltips. Uh, so in each episode, we kind of ask like a future facing question of like, where is the field that this person in particular is? W will it go? And since here, we've mostly talked about open source. Uh, let's talk about that. So what do you think uh, the ideal scenario for open source funding at scale is? Do you like think we're on a good path where we are now? And like, what do you think the future of open source is? Is it company backed? Is it individual mm. contributors looking at their GitHub notifications, feeling anxiety? Like, wh where are we going? <laughs> oh man, that's such a big question. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Remember, the full episode is only available to our Patreon members. Thanks for listening. Mm.